The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. I've been thinking a lot about failure and learning recently, especially when it comes to doing good. We're in the midst of a global disaster that has taken the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and has impacted us all. This is not the first disaster the world has lived through. The 1918 pandemic took at least 50 million lives. In fact, we regularly face disasters in the form of cyclones, hurricanes, floods and earthquakes, as well as humanitarian disasters resulting from conflict and other issues. America is in crisis, with over 2.5 million cases in total, although some say the actual number is much higher, and daily increases in the tens of thousands. We've seen endless media stories of shortages of medical supplies, especially in the early days where doctors and healthcare workers had insufficient supplies of basic personal protective equipment. I've been wondering why, when there are many previous disasters to learn from, when people are highly trained to respond to humanitarian disaster, and when the US itself sends human, financial and physical resources in response to disaster. Why haven't we learned? Why do our systems fail us in a time of crisis? To help me unpack this, I've invited Nathan Parker on the show. Nathan is a problem solver. He has worked in a diverse array of places and spaces. He's been a primary care provider, startup founder, led large-scale interactive art installations, and worked to bring the global maker movement into a coherent, self-sustaining ecosystem. He has run workshops around the world on open source mutual aid disaster resilience and organized global summits on open source hardware in distributed manufacturing. As the COVID-19 crisis reveals the fragility of our global supply chain, communities of makers, engineers, designers, and healthcare providers have come together to meet the world's needs for medical supplies. However, this response has suffered from a lack of coordination and interoperability In support of this work, Nathan's been developing a distributed digital infrastructure to enable both a better coordinated response during the crisis and greater resilience in those to come. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Nathan. Thank you for having me. First of all, Nathan, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? To to give context to this, I mean, I'm nearly 40. I spent the first half of my life, I would say, in a very, very serious depression. I was in my early 20s when I first had a a moment where I'm like, oh, I think this is what people are talking about when they say they feel happy. And a lot of the sort of bizarre and circuitous career arc that I've followed since then has really felt like, I don't know, uh, do you know what a dowsing rod is? Yes, I do. It's like that kind of thing. You're just sort of following something that sort of occasionally like kicks and points you in a direction. You go, all right, we'll see what here is. But I was just following whatever 
seemed to be the thing that would lead me out of this darkness. And, and universally, it has been helping people in some way. It's why I got medical training. It's why I've been drawn to this disaster work. I'll sort of speak for myself personally and then maybe generalize, but I haven't followed it because it's like, oh, e- you know, ego pets for being the, the good boy. It's more like, you know, depression is isolation in many ways, um, especially chronic depression. And it is connection. It is a sense of shared purpose. It is a sense of usefulness within something larger. And that's, that's kind of what I've been chasing most of my life. And what was that first thing that made you think, oh, this is what people mean when they say they feel happy? So back in 2000, I was studying computer engineering because I had no idea what else to do. But a friend of mine convinced me to take a uh, bodywork class. You know, there's a bunch of us who'd like never laid hands on another person before sitting there kind of awkwardly doing something and my hands just kind of seemed to know where to go. Like every time and just like, like magnets were in it and just find the place and people would be like, ah, oh, so much better. Well, I just touched a person and helped. Weird. That's great. I should do more of that. Yeah, right. And do you feel that doing good is something that you express throughout your daily life or is it something that you kind of silo to the side? It's something that I, I wish I was able to express more in my daily life. At its root, there's just kindness. Uh, just trying to act with kindness and, and care for the people around me and in my community. I don't know if that, that qualifies as doing good with a capital G, but if, if you have a moment, there's something that I'd like to share with you that kind of sums up a lot of how I look at all this. Uh, and it is a, a beautiful poem for, by Naomi Shihab Nye, written in 1952. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt and weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. Passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow is the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak till it to your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to purchase bread and mail letters. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then it goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Wow, it's beautiful. Thank you. Do you think that that desire for you to come out of that depressive place is what drives you to want to help others now? Or was there something deeper, something earlier? That was what started me on this. But I have to be honest that the depression that marked the first half of my life has been, I think, largely absent in recent years and not for lack of good reason to be depressed. The, you know, if you've looked at the world recently, I find what I need to keep going in the community that I build doing the things that seem to need doing. You know, if we're talking about the sort of like the psychological aspect of, of doing good, I think especially in America, certainly we're very much sold on this individualist notion of mental health. I think I take a much more mutual aid approach. It makes me think, you know, doing good can often be a way to alleviate our own discomfort. Well, it's, it's usually a way to alleviate our own discomfort, whether that's, you know, our discomfort in watching someone else suffer or our own internal discomfort, which can be supported by doing things that make us feel good. Yeah, absolutely. 
Nathan, you've done a lot of very interesting things, but today I want to specifically focus on talking about your current project where you're working at the intersection of open source hardware, disaster resilience, and the COVID-19 response in the US. Can you tell us a little bit about the project and what it's actually trying to achieve? Sure. Just I'll, I'll set up some context. So starting in early March, as things were just starting to get hairy here, some friends of mine started up a project called Open Source Medical Supplies uh, that was trying to respond to the challenge of the, the ratio of signal to noise was very poor. The number of people in the like, engineering and maker community all over the US in particular, but all over the world, uh, who were desperate to help and feel useful, led to an enormous amount of untested and unwanted designs being shared around and being made and being delivered and doctors being like, this is going to kill someone. Please never do this again. And, and so OSMS started up trying to be kind of a, a funnel for all these bad designs, filter out the ones that weren't needed, document and make more usable the good ones. Uh, and they've done some really good work. Um, check out opensourcemedicalsupplies.org. So I've been involved with them. But within that first month, I couldn't shake the feeling that there was a piece missing. And so I kind of zoomed out a level because OSMS is really just concerned with information hygiene. That is all that's in their remit. And what, what is information hygiene? You know, we all live in the era of information wars now. And whether disinformation is intentional or accidental, the level of disinformation causes huge problems, especially when you're dealing with, you know, say, say you have a thousand isolated workshops around the country. And all of them have, you know, 3D printers and laser cutters, and they want to be helpful, and they, they want to do a thing, they want to chip in. But the only way that they have to find a design is just like Google it or go on Thingiverse. The chances of finding a design that is medically reviewed, that is safe, that is going to actually do the thing it's supposed to do is very low. Right. Okay. So their main focus is that, but the community that's built up around it has shipped, I think, like 12 million units of PPE in the last, you know, four months or something like that. It's... And how much of that is useful? Um, it's definitely getting better. Uh, most of that is face shields, which are helpful for doctors and they're super lightweight. The, the very little of that is like ventilators or anything really complicated, but it had made a dent. However, so the, you know, this is all now setting context for what I've been working on. What I see is this. This is really great work. This is people you know, turning out hundreds or thousands of like masks and shields and stuff from their little shops here and there, uh, but it is barely moving the needle. It is orders of magnitude off from the actual scale of the problem. And the difficulty of this problem only goes up from here. This kind of comes back to like the bigger picture conversation about why is it so difficult to do good in disasters. And this is a big part of it. In a disaster, regardless of what type of disaster it is, the, the two things that usually break down first, if it's really a disaster, are supply chain and infrastructure. The capital S supply chain, when you talk about the supply chain, you know, the, the global distributed manufacturing system that make, makes the stuff magically appear in our stores, is pretty centrally controlled and it is very, very optimized in a way that's truly impressive, but you can only, you can't optimize for everything at once. If you optimize for efficiency, you lose resilience. There are antagonistic qualities at either end of the, of the spectrum. If you optimize for profit, you cannot also optimize for human well-being. Uh, and this supply chain treats, you know, critical life-saving goods and luxury goods the same. You know, if you look at what's happening with climate change and weather destruction and phasing out of fossil fuels while our entire supply chain relies on diesel. You know, if you look at the, you know, increasing global geopolitical instability, 
the massive global recession that's just starting, the many waves of COVID yet to come and whatever other pandemics are coming out of the permafrost, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is, these are the good old days. You know, and, and the conversations we're having around what to do for COVID are the same conversations we were having six years ago with Ebola. You know, we haven't learned anything because it requires a systemic change. You need essentially a new supply chain that exists in parallel to the old one that is localized and decentralized and focused on critical life-saving goods based on open source designs at cost rather than luxury goods produced wherever labor laws are the, are the weakest and shipped halfway around the world. And so building that system is you know, a non-trivial lift, as they say. And so that's what you're working on to try to build a localized system. Yes. I sat here watching everyone running around like chickens with their head cut off and I, you know, myself included for a time, I'll admit. And it, you know, it felt like all tactics and no strategy. In terms of what we need for this supply chain, I think of it in terms of five layers. I didn't set out to make an alliteration, it just worked out that way. So you have design, documentation, demand aggregation, distributed manufacturing, and delivery logistics. Pretty much what it does on the tin. I had many, many conversations with you know, leadership level people at uh, companies and organizations at, across all of these layers. None of them knew what the other one was doing. Many were trying to reinvent the entire system from scratch because they didn't have visibility into what other people were doing. Uh, some people were attempting to just ignore layers entirely and hope for the best. And for a while I was trying to like build a whole piece of software that would do all of this. And I realized I really didn't need to. Like all of the pieces exist. They just don't talk to each other. And so rather than try to build yet another platform, which the world does not need, trust me, um, rather than try to build yet another app, I don't need to compete with the people who are doing part of it well. I just need to get them talking to each other. And so the system has been more about like an interoperability framework based on open source hardware that will allow you to, for example, say you're an engineer and you, you, you know, someone at a hospital is like, oh, we need a thing that does this. Uh, and, you know, and our the factory in China is not getting it to us for another, you know, however long. So you publish a design, automatically flags to the documentation team. They push it to the system, run it through a medical review check and say, okay, yeah, this passes, signed, goes into the queue. Now it shows up automatically for the demand aggregation. And those are all like mutual aid organizations. So getuspppe.org is a great example or mask force or things like that. And these are mostly run on spreadsheets and air tables where it's just local communities saying like, all right, who needs it? Who's got it? We're just going to figure this out. You know, they're otherwise totally disconnected from the process. The only designs that you have to choose from are the ones that have gone through this process and are like documented and reviewed. Now you say, all right, we're going to, you know, order us a thousand of these, goes into the distributed manufacturing system, which again is already there. Companies like Zometry, XOMETRY, Zometry have like 4,000 locations around the world and you just feed them a file and they make it and deliver it. Uh, you know, like that model exists. There's no reason to, to try to do it again. Uh, you know, and like Fictive, Plethora, those 3D hubs, there's a dozen companies doing this. And so the idea is make a model where any company that does that can plug in, where you can make a new one that plugs in. You don't have to build a whole thing from scratch. Uh, most of those distributed manufacturing companies kind of have their own logistics partnerships, but there's also volunteer-based ones that can plug into this. PBELogistics.org is another great project that's helping with that. So all the pieces are there. Like it's literally just they can't talk to each other and they don't have visibility into each other's process. So I've been slowly trying to build that framework and get everyone to come to the table and say, yes, okay, we understand that this is the problem and this is how we're going to solve it and do it in a way that doesn't step on anyone's toes. But I think it's been working. What's the reception like? Are people wanting to engage in a platform like this or a tool like this? Yeah, so the, the folks that I've talked to by and large have been 
really receptive. I think, you know, so there's, there's been a number of like, these are virtual conferences and so on. And, and efforts like this get talked about a lot. You know, I can't tell you how many presentations I've seen where someone's like, oh, you know, this is my makerspace. We ended up like prototyping a design for this thing and turned out, you know, a thousand for our community. And, you know, we all feel really good about it. And, you know, people, I think, psychologically really need the little wins. I, I don't regret anyone that. But I tend to be the one who comes in and say, okay, so the reality is like, that's great, but that is several orders of magnitude away from what is needed. And you need, you need a system to be more efficient than you can be on your own. And when I kind of name the problem or the, the discrepancy, rather, when I name the discrepancy between what we've done and what we need to be doing, pretty much it's just nodding around the room. And like, everyone's like, yeah. You know, so generally the conversation goes, all right, so like, here's that. We're not even moving the needle, but we're almost there. Like we, could, we can do this. We just have to coordinate better. This is not an engineering problem. This is a coordination problem. You know, a lot of this is building on uh, the work of, you know, me and many colleagues of mine in previous years on open source hardware for disaster resilience. Um, Fieldready.org, I've worked with a number of times and that's this has kind of been their, their wheelhouse for many years. Also, I should mention my colleagues at Uncompromise, uh, which is sort of a consulting company for you know, NGOs and so on, trying to help people suck less at doing good. I'm the one here talking to you about it, but I, it's, it's all possible because of a lot of people and a lot of moving parts. What is the biggest challenge then to making this actually happen and, and making it function in a way that it needs to? Well, what we're trying to do on a technical level, because we're not building a platform, because we're just building this a framework really, is not the most challenging part. Honestly, the most challenging part is the, the like funding resources. You know, to do this right would take a, a pretty small team a few months working closely with like the tech teams of these other established companies that have their own in-house budget. Uh, but we just need a small team to like, who can afford to do this full time. And I've gone through probably 20 volunteers who have been like, yeah, I'm in. Okay. I need to look for work. Okay. I found work. I got to go. In general, my impression from you know, the last several years of trying to do stuff like this and talking to folks who've been doing it much longer is that people want easy fix problems that they can point to. You know, especially if they're in investing, they want to be able to say, okay, well, I give this company X many dollars and they made, you know, an app that shipped and did these things or whatever. The low-hanging fruit is easy to point to. It's easy to fund. It's really hard to find people who have enough of a head for systems that you can explain to them why this needs a, like a systems engineering approach. We've just struggled to find the resources to be able to do this full time. It's hard right now. I mean, it makes me wonder, you know, with the scale of this disaster and the devastation that's being caused by not having these systems functioning properly, why aren't people scrambling to fund it? I honestly don't know. We've applied to five or six different, you know, big grants that have gone out and nothing. Infrastructure is not sexy. Really what we're trying to build is like a distributed infrastructure in much the same way that a lot of the you know, the infrastructure that makes the internet possible is itself very not sexy. This is like setting up the TCP IP protocol for open source hardware. If we were really America centric, if we were really like, oh, we want to solve this problem for Silicon Valley, I'm sure we would have had people throwing money at us. But from where I stand, this, this isn't a success if it's not just as useful to, you know, people running a, a clinic in a refugee camp as it is to someone at, you know, New York General. There's refugee camps of you know, millions of people that are just getting hammered right now and there's no publicity. And these are people who are literally sifting through garbage dumps to cut you know, Coke bottles open to make face shields so that they can go back to treating people in a tent. Is there a way that perhaps the, the members of the supply chain, so the companies, can be part of funding it, given that it's of benefit to them? I think it's possible, certainly. 
from the conversations I've been having for the last several months and all the work I've done so far, at this point, I can kind of bring together at the you know company leadership from at least one organization at each of those layers I described. And the idea is to just sort of get everyone together and say, okay, this is what we need for proof of concept. This is what we'd like. This is our stretch goals. This is what we want to try to do. What does everyone need to get out of this? What can everyone put on the table? You know, and just just figure it out. Definitely. And it seems a bit of a no-brainer in the sense that it's it's kind of creating that shared value network or that shared value environment where by participating in a network like this, you're increasing your own productivity and your own effectiveness and your own impact. Yeah, exactly. It will likely require those people going to their investors or taking out a small business loan against their current business. I don't, th- I don't think any of these groups have like, you know, slush funds like like that, you know. Yeah. So, Nathan, I guess this kind of makes me wonder, why is the system so dysfunctional currently? You know, if you look at it from an ideological perspective, you know, it's a great way to drive yourself crazy because nothing makes sense. But if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, incentive structures, people generally do exactly what they're incentivized to do. You know, a great example is that, you know, nobody invented Las Vegas because they wanted to optimize humanity for hedonism. You know, Las Vegas exists because of, you know, uneven structure in a, in a regulatory environment and Nash equilibria in games of chance. A rational central planner with a God's eye view might have thought, you know, hmm, there's a quirk in dopaminergic reward circuits where activities with a slightly negative risk-benefit ratio get the same emotional valence as activities with a slightly positive risk-benefit ratio. We, c- we should edu- educate people to be aware of these facts. In the same way, we have, we have incentive structures where people look at sort of the things ahead of them, and regardless of how those things were intended to be used or if they're just sort of the artifacts in play, people follow their incentives. And the incentives that they have are to move labor to wherever the labor laws are weakest and to you know, pull whatever strings they can to keep those laws weak. You know, same with environmental regulations, et cetera. To assume that a fossil fuel-driven shipping economy will remain steady and stable and profitable and to spend billions of dollars every year creating needs so that when you produce things with an economy of scale and create millions more than anyone actually wanted, you find ways to make people buy it anyway. Like these are the incentives of the global supply chain. At no point anywhere in there is it incentivized to get people what they need to survive. At no point anywhere is it incentivized to prepare for disasters and have more than you need on hand. So coordinated action is the only way that we have to get out of this. Building systems of decentralized mutual aid, building systems of relocalized fabrication, the means of production in in the very special sense that that word is used, or that phrase is used, you know, the the means of production have been attenuated and, and sort of sent far, far away very deliberately. And it has really turned the world into a place where people either make things they can't afford to buy or buy things they don't know how to make. So does this mean that, you know, what we call the third sector, the helping sector, the, the, the social impact space, however you want to make it known as, does this mean that those spaces are essentially fighting a losing battle? without that extra piece of coordination that you're talking about? I would say so. I mean, Lord knows billions of dollars have been allocated towards, you know, aid and nonprofits, and we seem to be, you know, heading further down the toilet here. So I'm sure it would be worse without it, but not necessarily. I mean, if you've read 
books like Dead Aid, but you know the the tens of billions of dollars in aid that have gone to Africa have, have absolutely made things worse all across the board. There's a lot in the model itself that's broken. Look at the history of uh, like environmental protection nonprofits, especially in the U.S. from like the '70s on. And you see the same thing you see everywhere else, regulatory capture and sort of compromise of principles. And now there's like, I forget which one it is, but they, there's a, like a wildlife refuge run by like a very successful, you know, environmental defense fund kind of entity in Texas that has a, an oil well on it and no living animals left. And they're like, no, we're, we're successful. We've partnered with Exxon and we're, you know, we're helping greenwash them or whatever. There's a lot of ways that the helping sector is... I'd say morally vulnerable to the people writing the checks. Absolutely. Back in, uh, I want to say like the 70s, when the, you know all of what ended up leading to the EPA, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, that came on the end of a, like a long string of really intense lawsuits and like really aggressive stance towards corporations that was super effective. And corporations were really not happy about it. And so they've started being like, well, if you work with us, we'll give you money. And so everyone started to say, oh, no, we should be, we should be friends with them. And that hasn't worked, clearly. I, you know, I mean, it's the it's a problem we're seeing on every level, kind of around the world, as as more and more money concentrates in fewer and fewer hands. You know, the decision making power about what is actually possible and who can do it becomes increasingly concentrated. And it's pretty well documented at this point that money pushes you to the right, ideologically. Absolutely, and I mean, it makes me think of situations where corporations are offered board positions for the not-for-profits that they donate to. Therefore, they have veto power for the project, the kind of projects that this not-for-profit is able to fund. And, you know, when you look at it like that, it seems absolute madness. Oh, yeah. It's, it's reputation laundering. Absolutely. And you look at the shared value model, which says that corporations should contribute to social issues in society as a way to also look at increasing their productivity and also increasing their profits while solving social challenges. And that reputational laundering that you just, that you just so eloquently said actually fits perfectly into that model. It does, but you still have things like fiduciary responsibility. Uh, for those who are not familiar, look it up. It's, it explains a lot, but basically the, the short version is that the CEO of, of any for-profit company has a responsibility to his shareholders to maximize their profits above literally anything else. If that CEO is like, well, I shaved a few percent off of our profits so that I could do this thing to support our workers or raise wages or whatever, that CEO can and very frequently is fired immediately for breach of fiduciary responsibility and replaced with someone who won't do that again. And I guess that's where this, the idea of social enterprise and, and B Corps has come out is to challenge that model, right? Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, we're, we are in the beginning of a time of great change and no one really knows what's coming next. The times of greatest change and chaos are the times of greatest leverage. I, I think for anyone trying to do good right now, the deck is, is pretty heavily stacked against us, but it's also a very real opportunity to have an effect much bigger than we have in the past. I mean, even just look at what the, the George Floyd protests have been doing. They've accomplished more in you know, the last four weeks than any major civil rights action I can think of. There's, I think there's something like 10 times more individual protests going on than after MLK was assassinated. You think technology has a huge role to play Absolutely. in all of this? 
the George Floyd protests, the COVID response. Makes me wonder, though, this isn't the first large-scale disaster we've had, and it's certainly not the first where we've had technology available to help us solve it or respond to it quicker. Why don't we learn? My go-to line here is is a a quote from George Bernard Shaw, uh, who says that, that we do not learn much from the lessons of history is itself one of the greatest lessons of history. Right? I mean... (laughs) Think about what would be required to have learned that lesson. You know, it would require an investment in infrastructure and long-term thinking. It would require allocating public resources towards things with no obvious immediate benefit so that you can be ready for another thing. And we have a political and economic system, which are sort of inextricably married to each other, that are not incentivized to do that. The system that we've created that politicians have to exist in incentivizes them to do whatever it takes to get elected and to say whatever it takes and to get away with not doing it because they'll be out before you know it anyway. It is a systemic level problem. Uh, and I, I'm not really optimistic about reform or you know tweaking knobs here and there. No, and it makes me think of you know social welfare systems that are set up essentially to respond to the symptoms of a problem rather than the problem itself and a refusal to invest in preventive mechanisms because the timescale of seeing results of that is too long. Yeah. And also kind of going back to what you just said about political systems and how they're set up. I mean, obviously the fact that government term here in Australia is, you know, so short in the U S it's four years It doesn't really give you a lot of time to implement long-term plans without the concern that the next government or the opposition is going to come in and change them. It's exacerbated by the voting system, by the sort of winner-take-all approach, which has created a two-party system unlike what is found in most functional democracies uh, and which the founding fathers explicitly were terrified of happening. And it leads to greater polarization and greater partisanship, et cetera. Hassan Minaj just did a special on this. on the Patriot Act, check it out. But with something like ranked choice voting, you wouldn't have this problem of like, oh, a vote for Bernie is throwing, throwing your vote away because he'll never win. You can still support people and you know you can form coalitions and you can create kind of greater long-term stability. But winner take all is again, incentivizes people in the wrong direction. Yeah, what's happening in the States is extraordinary right now. Probably the understatement of the century, but, but you know, externally kind of looking in at, at what is happening and the misinformation and the propaganda and you know obviously you're leading up to an election there so things are only going to kind of increase on that front how does that impact response in this space for what you're doing god it's been such a clusterfuck um so for example this is in part political and part economic One of the things that we found in trying to distribute open source medical supplies, uh, especially in the early months when everyone was really desperate and we were, you know, seeing nurses wearing trash bags instead of gowns and things like that. Doctors who would publicly, you know, even on their private Twitter or whatever, uh, announce that they needed PPE or, you know, solicit donations or anything like that were usually fired on the spot. And and the company would have to like make some statement denying it, even if it was entirely 100% true that they were all out of PPE and doctors were having to like reuse their one mask for a week or whatever. So a lot of that had turned into, you know, basically like shipping it to a doctor's private residence and then they just like bring in their personal stash, quote unquote. Again, you know, hospital systems in the U.S. are incentivized to make a profit 
And if people aren't filling the emergency rooms with normal injuries and all they're doing is treating COVID, that's less profit. So they're starting to fire nurses and tell them to come back as volunteers without PPE if they want. In some places, this is motivated by the political partisanship that has enveloped this whole thing. Uh, in some places, it's just blind economics. It is amazing to me to live in a country that has managed to turn like, whether or not you should observe basic safety in a pandemic into a partisan political issue. Trump is trying to fill rally stadiums, you know, indoor rally stadiums with people without masks, and it's just mind-blowing. To watch the lead-up to that and to watch it go ahead, it is. It's mind-blowing and, you know, heartening to see that it was not full. Big thanks to teenagers on TikTok. Right? <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it is. It's, it's mind-boggling as well to understand why a leader would push that. I mean, as, as someone who, who grew up kind of expecting a William Gibson future, I feel like the future that we have is, is constantly both stranger and more disappointing than I ever imagined. So I want to ask you what we can do to make sure we capture the lessons now. That's a lot of what spurred this project for me is looking at the duplication of effort, looking at the reinvention of wheels, looking at people spinning up organizations to solve one problem which as soon as they you know, run out of funding or go back to work or burn out their volunteers will disappear, all that data will be lost in the, the silo, you know, that website will go down and now everyone, the, the next time we have to solve this problem again somewhere else or in the same place a few years later, we have to build it all from scratch. So I'm thinking a lot about this because this, we don't have time to do this again. Some of it just comes down to data standards. So for example, in the, the you know, open source hardware world, there is a, a product I've been working on with a number of folks for the last couple of years called Open Know-How. It is essentially an, a universal open hardware data standard. All of the information that you would need to create an object should be contained within this file that you can just send someone. And they're like, okay, great. This, this actually contains everything. This is like the CAD file, the bill of materials, the assembly instructions, the you know, photo of what, should it, what it should look like, how it works, blah, 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 all the things. There have been a number of attempts and there are a number of different frameworks for you know, the sort of impact work or you know, social good work. There's, you know, there's the UN Sustainable Development Goals Framework and there's the IRIS Framework, which predated it. But those don't really capture method or process. They're just sort of impact metrics. There are projects like uh, the Sphera project, S-P-H-A-E-R-A dot world, I believe, which is an attempt to create a sort of a modular, pick your different pieces and put them together however your NGO works and like describe your process with it but it's never really gotten off the ground. I don't know what the tool is. We might, it might be one that we have to make. It might be, ideally, it's building on what's already there. But, but all that being said, we need, a, at the very least, a place that can just start capturing what worked and what didn't from all these groups, an archive.org of Google Docs to start, uh, you know, whatever it is, saying like, all right, you know, this was our entity. We spun it up you know, for this disaster. We did these things. These worked. These didn't even capture any of that. Save some spreadsheets, something. To, to really do this, you would need groups that have actually been doing the work on the ground. Even get a, get a half dozen together and say, okay, can we all document what we were doing and what we learned in this same format? Does it only work for some and not others? How do we need to extend it? You can get pretty far doing that and you don't need a lot of resources to do it. But if you can get it to where those interventions are machine repeatable, then you can start doing things like you can collate them into a meaningful database. Okay, Nathan, I want to bring it back to you a little bit more now. 
what is it about the work that you do that you are naturally drawn to? And what is it that challenges you the most? What do you find the most challenging? I feel like I was always that kid kind of staring off into space, you know, building castles in, in, in my mind. All of this came from just looking at the systems, modeling it in my head and playing out what it was going to do and saying, well, that's not going to work. It's just how my brains always work. You know, I didn't really think that what I'm doing now was a career. I didn't know that it existed as an option when I was younger. Um, I don't know that I'd really call it a career now. It's, uh, it might be one eventually when it pays me, but uh, it's certainly a thing that I, I'm passionate about and spend a lot of time doing. The low hanging fruit is easy and sexy and, and it's, it, it gets funded and then people make an app or do a thing and it feels good. And, and don't get me wrong, a lot of these things do help people. I, they absolutely help people. I don't think most of them help on the scale that's needed. And, and, I, and I think in a way that that could never scale to what is needed. And as a systems thinker, for me to pour energy into one of these low hanging fruit sort of band-aid solutions feels disingenuous. It's incredibly challenging to do good in the world in a way that is persistent. How has your concept of doing good evolved over the years? I had very limited exposure to people in general when I was younger. And a lot of my work in my 30s in particular has really been, you know, becoming aware of, you know, racism that I just sort of inherited growing up, becoming aware of these biases, becoming aware of the white savior complex and all these things, like learning how to talk less and listen more, learning that, you know, a good question is worth 50 answers, learning to slow down and understand things with greater depth before jumping in and trying to solve the surface problem because you're usually just making it worse. Is there someone that's been a big influence on you in doing good? Oh, yeah. I have been lucky enough in the last handful of years to have a few people that kind of started off as heroes become peers, become friends. There's folks like Dara Dots, for example, who is one of the, co- one of the founders of Field Ready. Check out her TED Talk. She's doing really cool stuff now in a, in a different project. And also Andrew Lamb from Field Ready, who's still with them. And colleague at Uncompromised, Madeline Martinier, has been you know, working in this kind of systems design and, you know, maker movement and distributed manufacturing for many, many years, more than me, and is absolutely brilliant. And getting to to work with her is, and, you know, be her friend has been a surprisingly wonderful thing in the last handful of years. Eva Galperin from EFF, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, is incredible and an inspiration, all the work that she does, protecting journalists and dissidents around the world uh, from, you know, government surveillance. Getting to have these people in, in my close circles has been a huge inspiration. Excellent. We'll, um, we'll try to put those in the show notes as well. Nathan, this is a philosophical question. It's drawn from uh, the work of Kwame Apaya, and it asks, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. Given the existential threat posed to you know our species and most of life on this planet by climate change, which is driven by capitalism, I think capitalism itself is the is the greatest ill that needs to be solved. You cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. You just can't. We knew about those limits to growth 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, but you know, the incentives to get people to stop weren't there or they weren't powerful enough. You know, if we can't solve that, if we can't solve, you know, the, the profit motive outweighing life and happiness, you know, not even happiness, like just life on this planet. If we can't figure out how to solve that, then there's no society to have social problems. 
the good news is that the, the time to do that is now. That's also the bad news. Nathan, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I will, I will share the, the words of someone wiser than myself uh, with you. It's something I come back to a lot and something I wish I didn't have to explain to people. The only dream worth having is to dream that you will live while you are alive and die only when you are dead. To love, to be loved, to never forget your own insignificance, to never get used to the unspeakable violence and vulgar disparity of life around you, to seek joy in the saddest places, to pursue beauty to its lair, to never simplify what is complicated or complicate what is simple, to respect strength, never power, and above all, to watch, to try and understand, to never look away and never never to forget. Beautiful. And who's that by again? Arundhati Roy. Beautiful. Nathan, is there someone you can think of who you think has led well through this crisis? Someone who's doing a lot of good right now. One of the groups that I've uh, been sort of involved with here and there, they've, they've been a, a partner in building this um, universal, the open know-how standard I mentioned, uh, is a group called Wiki Factory. Uh, and Christina Rebel is, is one of their founders. And um, they set up a, like a collaborative open source system for sharing and improving on designs for COVID response called, I think, viralresponse.io. But like ever since this began, we've been, we've been talking pretty regularly and they have just been all in on trying to solve this. And they've actually managed to, I think, get further on that, like building a real collaborative system that will actually capture this information and these learnings for next time uh, better than anyone else that I've seen and with not a lot of resources. Wikivectory is great. Give them some love. Uh, Christina Rebel is awesome. That's first person that comes to mind. Nathan, where's your favorite place on earth? I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. I really miss night markets. I, 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 lived, mm-hmm. in, uh, I lived in Taipei for about six or seven months. And like everyone knows about Thailand, like Thailand, Thailand is, is the place everyone goes. Taiwan is surprisingly, it's not a place a lot of people go. It's like the friendliest people, the best food. It's gorgeous. It's, I love how much of the island is, is still undeveloped, but there are big cities where everything is happening and you can kind of have it all really in, in one, little, one little place. But out of all the places in the world that I've been, which is, you know, I don't know, 20 something countries, uh, I felt like the, the friendliness was so genuine there. As, as differentiated from politeness, you know, there's like a, a genuine warmth. We had some technical issues with the last part of our recording. So unfortunately we don't have Nathan here to wrap it all up. However, I can share that Nathan is currently reading a book called The Peripheral by William Gibson, and he's listening to a podcast on history called The Dollop. If you want to find out more about Nathan and his work, you can contact him through LinkedIn or Twitter. That's Nathan Parker. And check out his work with an amazing organization called Uncompromise. Also, we're now producing resource sheets for each episode containing links to the books, websites, podcasts, papers, poetry and philosophy mentioned in each episode. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe and share.